0: Last year, a branch of a family-friendly place popular with NS men and soldiers was undergoing a renovation. But a portion of it was still open to the public. There was one night, roughly after 9 p.m., I needed to use the washroom. Me and friend drove in from the car park, and my friend waited in the vehicle. I went in from the car park front counter, where there is a cash-up top-up machine, and a security officer sitting behind his desk. And took a lift up to second floor or third floor where the chinese restaurant is if you guys could recall the layout once you come out from the lift you turn right as the chinese restaurant you walk further as the public washroom during that night i exited the lift and the air all around me was still and the area was dark nobody was on that floor and the restaurant wasn't opened it was very quiet and there wasn't any breeze I proceeded into the public washroom and unexpectedly, no one was in the washroom. I proceeded with my business, washed my hands and exited the toilet, heading back to the lift. As I was about to reach the lift and press the down button, I heard a very distinctly door slamming sound behind me. Instinctively, I recognized the sound of cubicle door slamming in the toilet. I froze for a second but acted nothing has happened, and pressed the down button and waited for the lift to bring me to the car park. The slamming sound was heard again. It was as if someone was in the toilet slamming a cubicle door hard. The lift arrived and I calmly walked in and pressed for basement, as the lift door closed, I could still hear cubicle doors being slammed. I reached the car park and asked the security officer whether anyone was in the second floor. He looked at me and told me the premise is under renovation, no one is on that floor. I asked him whether is he sure. He then looked at me and asked whether I am alright. So I replied him that second floor perhaps is not very clean. He then gave me a strange look. I walked back to the car but my friend looked very surprised and commented that I looked very pale and I was drenched with perspiration. The opera song. During my military service, we had this 9D8N summary exercise in Taiwan and we usually had 3 to 4 missions per day. I forgot which day was it but we were doing section night ambush. It was spring in Taiwan and the sun set at 5 pm plus. We broke up into sections and headed over to our training area. Each section had 10 trainees and one commander slash instructor with a signal set we needed to simulate an actual seven men section thus two trainees were tasked to be the enemies and the last trainee followed our instructor as signaller for a night section ambush other than forming a section formation we needed to set up a trip flare which would light up the area when triggered and a claymore mine both of which were dummies but we still diligently set it up according to sops the above was each of our location and the terrain We were on the higher grounds and were supposed to ambush the enemies on the dirt track on the lower ground. Bear in mind that it was a forest and as our training area was large, the space between each trainee was quite far but we could still roughly see the trainee next to us. We waited for nightfall and for our PC to tell our instructor to begin the mission. I don't recall what time was it exactly but it was pitch black when the signal set crackled and we could hear our PC telling our instructor to begin the ambush as sound travelled well at night. We then prepared ourselves and knew that our two fellow trainees who were tasked to be enemies would then made their way down, near Trainee 7, to the dirt track. We were not far from the dirt track, maybe 20 to 30 meters away. So the enemies needed only probably less than 1 to 2 minutes to get to the right side of the dirt track to begin the mission. Trainee 1 and 7 had night vision goggles so that they could see where the enemies were coming from. We waited and waited for almost 10 minutes but nothing. This was when my instructor got frustrated and shouted WTF, so short distance and how long you guys need to get to the tracks? And nope, we didn't hear anything from the two enemies. It was at this moment when the signal set, which was connected to our platoon HQ, started crackling again. A lady's high-pitched voice singing an opera song came from the signal set. You can imagine how our balls froze. We didn't know how to react as we thought it might be someone playing a prank on us or something else. This went on for a good 5 to 10 seconds, I couldn't remember exactly how long. Then we suddenly heard our PC over the signal set saying all instructors, abort night ambush mission immediately and get back to platoon HQ now. Our instructor shouted at the top of his voice for all of us to pack up, the dummy trip flare and claymore mine, and also to check where were the two enemies. Now thinking back, what happened next was actually quite comical. We switched on our L torches and ran to the dirt track to retrieve the dummy trip flare and claymore mines. For those who had been trainees, you would know that we would always pack everything nicely and accounted for them as we wouldn't want to risk signing 1206 or being confined in camp. However for this situation, it was vastly different. A few of us held open our uniform top and dumped the dummy trip flare and claymore mine, with wires and pins etc., onto our uniforms and carried them like carrying babies with both our arms and started to run. Just as we were about to run off, the 2 enemies suddenly showed up by walking from the downhill area towards us and said they wanted to share something incredible with us. My instructor told them that mission had been aborted and we talk when we get back to platoon HQ. When we got back to platoon HQ, and also saw how trainees from other sections carried their dummy trip flare and claymore mines on their uniform top like us, it was a comical sight, pc asked all instructors to gather for a debrief and for us trainees we packed the dummy trip flare and claymore mine into the bags and took a break our instructor then came back and asked the two enemies where did they went the two enemies said they went down the path towards the dirt track as instructed but they didn't see the dirt track at all even after walking for five minutes they knew that it would take only one to two minutes for them to reach the dirt track and when five minutes had passed They knew something was wrong but they continued walking downhill. This was when they suddenly came upon a small old wooden hut and they stopped. Just when both of them wanted to discuss what to do, they suddenly heard a lady singing a high-pitched opera song and they ran back the way they came from. After running a short while, they saw lights from our L-torches and the commotion we had, and they were relieved to be back with our section even though they expected to be scolded by our instructor. Our PC then gather our whole platoon for a debrief and said well, I guess everyone heard what happened over the signal set and I'm sure all four sections heard it. That's why I decided to pull everyone back just in case. This may be signal interference or other things. I will report to Koi HQ for further instructions. We had a technical break that night, meaning we did not have to stand guard and could shine our torch lights, cook and sleep etc and none of us could sleep that night and all of us were just discussing what happened. We were deep in the forest and there's no civilization nearby, how could it be signal interference? After much discussions, we realized that some sections heard the singing very loudly and some were softer. We didn't know why. Even today when I meet up my section mates, I still keep in contact with a few of them, we still talk about this incident balls really dropped man. Next story is not a first-hand experience but it happened to my seniors who told me the story about our koi line when I was posted back to BMTC to be a commander slash instructor. I still have three more stories, including one which happened at Dogger Bridge and one that happened near Pigeon Hole. We'll share the stories one by one. my BMT was in Tekong at Camp 1 during the mid-90s. And I was posted to the infamous Charlie Coy PL 10. Didn't experience anything remarkable there in my recruits' days, only saw a family of wild boars during one of me guard duty prowling rounds on the way to the infamous Soak grounds. The three-door bunk was diagonally opposite mine. Only strange thing I saw slash experienced was the bunk doors of the first bunk for my platoon had a pair of 3D stickers of Buddha stuck on them. Second strange thing was that my PC and all the platoon instructors bunk with us on the first night before the rest of the company enlisted following day. I have returned to Tekong during my MP conversion course and had to set up my MG in the middle of an oil palm plantation that was pitch dark behind me. Luckily we failed that mission 15 minutes after it started because of a cock up in my detail. The most happening event was during my ICT many years ago. My unit shared the Malay school with OCTs during our exercise there, sleeping in separate buildings. We completed our exercise early one night and turned into rest. A few of us were woken up early in the morning about 3 plus by a commotion in the next building. We saw some OCTs and their instructors running up to a Land Rover which just sped into the Malay school compound and heard some crying coming from inside the Land Rover. Our conducting officer, who was a regular, went to check with his colleague from OCS who was driving the Rover. There were lots of shouting inside and outside the Rover and even louder crying from inside the Rover. Our conducting officer's face turned grave after talking to the OCS instructors and saw the few of us capo from the windows of our bunk. His face turned damn black and signaled us to go back to sleep. The next evening before dinner, he shared with us what happened. He said got some OCTs ya, ya papaya never show the forest respect. Wanna pee in the jungle also never say excuse me first. One of the OCTs was peeing halfway when he looked down to the spot where he was peeing and he saw a pair of red angry eyes looking back at him from the spot his pee was landing. Before he could say a word he felt slash saw some sort of a hairy troll jumped up and slapped him. His buddy saw the slap by the creature and the creature disappeared into the woods. Both OCTs were evacuated to mainland and the one who Kenna slapped had one side of his face red and swollen till he couldn't open his eye on that side for a few days we heard. When you start to live in camp, it's a culture shock for some guys who aren't used to picking up after themselves. All of a sudden you're expected to clean up the barracks and change your own sheets etc. There are no women in the camp except for maybe the lunch ladies at the mess and some female officers who are housed separately. So my friend is tidying up his own bunk when he pulls a hair from his pillow. Nothing unusual right? Except that he kept pulling on the hair, revealing it to be longer and longer. Maybe 30 inches, silky and dark. The tiny hairs on the back of his neck rise. He looks around at his bunkmates. Everyone naturally has a crew cut since it's the military. This explains nothing. Not thinking further, he respectfully lays it aside and pretends he hasn't noticed it. This was an incident happening late at night when my friend and three of his buddies were escorting another guy out of the camp. I can't remember why, but it's pretty unusual to book out of camp by yourself at that hour, so it was possibly a family emergency. As they were walking out of the poorly lit area to the front gates, this was many years ago, when things aren't as modern as they are now, my friend sensed something was off. He was looking ahead and chatting to his friends but when he counted the number of people walking together from the corner of his eye, there seemed to be, six, four of his friends including himself, the guy they were escorting and, wait a second. He said nothing about it, but just urged them to quickly escort the guy to the main road and run like hell back to their barracks. Some of our camps are located next to cemeteries. You can look it up in Google Maps. I don't know why this is so, maybe they're trying to scare the guys from going AWOL in the middle of the night? Or maybe it's very removed from residential and commercial areas so the training doesn't disturb the civilians. Lots of incidents have occurred, like happening in on a ritualistic exorcism. You're supposed to report unusual incidents, but I can understand why they leave it out. Similarly, my friend was driving a heavy vehicle through one of these cemetery routes as part of a convoy. For some reason, he got terribly lost. It's not a huge area mind you, Singapore is land scarce as it is. Plus he lost sight of a heavy vehicle that was in front of his face. He's a little lad, but a huge truck isn't something that just disappears round the corner. He drove for 45 minutes like that. Trying to find the exit and his friends and all the while, he felt something wasn't right. When he explained it to his officer in charge later, he wasn't even punished for going missing because the regulars understand. They know sometimes, things just like to mess with you. The last incident I know of with cemeteries was driving back home after a late night, one of the regulars, who owned his own car as he passed the lonely bus stop by the cemetery he could have sworn there were three shadowy things sitting there even though the last bus had come and gone the same guy who was escorting his friend out of camp related another incident when he woke up in the middle of the night he went to maybe sneak in a cigarette you're not allowed to smoke except in designated areas on the corridor facing an open view of the forested area outside. At first he thought what he saw was a newspaper caught in the branches, but newspapers aren't starkly white, they don't flap and they most certainly do not dart from treetop to treetop. I've personally seen this forested area it's heavy with the sweet smell of tropical fruit. If you know guys, they'd try to go pick up some free fruit just because, heck, they can, but all I can say is that not a single one of those branches is touched. Ever. Anyway, he went over and tried to tell one of his buddies who promptly cussed him out and told him to go back to sleep because they shouldn't talk about such things in the dead of night. It's a given that you should never answer something when it calls out to you in the middle of the night it will know your name and if you respond well this guy did the right thing when he heard a huge banging on his door none of the other guys seemed disturbed by it possibly because they were too tired from running around carrying heavy packs during the day he heard from the other side of the door one of the guys from two or three barracks over calling his name and asking him to open the door he almost did until he reasoned with himself it can't be anything good If it was an emergency he would have sought help from people in his own barracks, and if it wasn't an emergency they were probably gonna do something that would get them all in trouble. Wisely he ignored it, but the next day he demanded an explanation from the person he thought he had heard. Save the guy denied ever stepping out of his barracks that night. His bunkmate confirmed it, saying he heard the same thing, except that he could see the person in question sleeping peacefully in front of him. This was an overseas training incident. Was it Thailand or Taiwan or, I really can't remember. These guys were there for outfield training, roughing it up and making it, as a platoon across some overgrown terrain. They have check-in points every few miles at designated times just to make sure they don't get lost and stuff and if they do get lost, the platoon ahead of them can backtrack to assist. The guys in this case were supposed to check in at a temple in the middle of the route. They found it easily enough and decided to take a rest there. Some of the more superstitious decided to stay outside and secure the area while the others decided to go in and check it out. This is where it gets fuzzy. The guys who stayed outside and waited got really worried after an hour when the ones who went and didn't return. It was getting dark too. They didn't want to go in themselves, but they couldn't leave without them, so they tried radioing the next checkpoint to tell them what was up. The platoon behind had apparently passed them and people were wondering where the hell they were. They hadn't been missing for an hour. They had been missing for four. The guys who went and eventually came back out, every single one of them. However, they all had different accounts of what happened inside. Some claimed they were the only ones brave enough to step inside. Others claimed that every single one of them had gone in, as a platoon some said they had been outside the whole time but they weren't another said they had gone in with their co but the co said they had gone in with a different recruit the concept of time was altered too there was someone who said he had only been inside looking around for five minutes before coming back out another said it was more like six hours that he was lost inside the descriptions of the temple interior were all different to some it had looked run down and creepy like no one had cleaned it for years. To others, it was small and well kept, almost modern. Whatever it was, the fact that they had been lost for so long was never officially put to record. Most people say it's scary to be in a cemetery but they're wrong. Cemeteries are places of rest and peace. Temples on the other hand. Well, they're like beacons calling lost souls. told to me by a cab driver as I was returning from a late party, about what he learned in the military. It's the deepest part of night. If you hear someone cackling loudly, if it's evil, inhuman and all around you, don't panic. It's very far away. Just stay calm and carry on with what you are doing. But if you hear a soft teasing giggle, like a hoo-hoo-hoo and it's right behind you, start to panic and pray to whatever god you worship. At this point, he giggled softly, maybe just to creep me out or piss me off. Heard some freaky stuff about the old police academy from a retired cop. Things like hearing military tattoos during the late hours when everyone else has gone home. How he once heard what sounded like a whole platoon of guys walking around on the second floor of a building at night but the lights were all off. Like Tekong, the place where the recruit was found eviscerated, no one is allowed to bring pork, raw or cooked, into the old academy. Bad luck follows those who do. I'm not sure why this is so Tekong was a Muslim burial ground, so that makes sense, but the thing about the academy struck me as odd. Another thing about that place you can never get the cabbies to drive up there at night apparently. They feel the place is unclean. It has some pretty neat colonial architecture, but with all the tales of Japanese atrocities form World War II and the thick looming trees. I understand the feeling the cabbies get. Not so much a military incident. But speaking of Pulau Tekong, I was reminded of a kidnapping slash murder incident from across the causeway in Malaysia and the culprits attempted to flee here, god knows why, I'd have gone north. They tried swimming across the narrow channel that divides the two countries and ended up on one of the many creepy offshore islands. Now, the authorities were clearly searching for these guys, and they tried to do so thoroughly. Even so it was three days later that they managed to find them and by that time, the guys were begging to be taken in. They had gotten so lost in the undergrowth that they couldn't even find each other although they shouted and shouted. Oddly enough, they were found not more than 50 meters, more or less 100 feet, from each other. The person I was discussing this with concluded that they were probably being punished for their misdeeds while on sacred ground. I speculated they could have been delirious from accidental sea water consumption. But that doesn't explain why they couldn't be found even though the island was smaller than the spit of land Jack Sparrow was on. Skeptical. I was pressing a colleague for interesting tales during a smoke break and he told me of his friend who was returning home from camp. Due to some incident, he had to book out late. Now he usually put his backpack into the box on his bike but he was in a rush to get home, so he thought nothing about the weight on his shoulders because it felt just like his backpack. The only problem was when he reached his apartment and opened up his box, his backpack was in the box. He described the feeling his hair raising and uncanny. Frightened, he went to a 24-hour coffee shop and washed his hands and face thoroughly. If he didn't, it would be inviting whatever was on his back into his home. I've had a strange experience on Tekong as well. This is over 10 years ago, but I still think about it from time to time. My unit is not based on the island, but we do go there to use the firing range from time to time. I was a recruit at the time and we spent a few weeks on the island doing field camp training which culminated with live firing on the range during this time when we were not out in the field we would be quartered at the old barracks these are the same barracks that had the some pretty horrible stories attached to them such as the famous stand by organ back in the day range was an opportunity for our instructors to be exceptionally cruel to us it seems stupid now Considering we were all handling live ammunition. We were expected to account for a certain amount of ammunition expended by returning empty shell casings. We kept getting punished for not bringing enough back. I am not sure if they took advantage of the situation or it was just really dark and people were missing the casings. This particular evening we completed range practice at about 9pm, and the punishment went on till about 2 in the morning. When the instructors were done with us, we had to double back to the old barracks some distance away. My platoon being first in the company led the way back. The entrance of the barracks was illuminated by street lamps and as we got back, I saw the distinct shadow of a person running past the front of a building about 10 meters away. My first thought was that maybe it was one of our logistics staff who may have gone back ahead of us but when we got into the camp, I discovered that we were the first back. I still don't know what to make of it, but they say that people can see ghosts when they are feeling down. Basic military training for conscripts is definitely a downer. There were a number of other incidents that took place the few weeks we were there. There is an old plantation there and some of the recruits saw shadows flying from treetop to treetop, and a possession at the same plantation. Come to think of it, even the camp back on the mainland of Singapore was pretty horribly haunted. Many tales can be told of that place. My grandfather fought in the Emu Wars and he watched dozens of soldiers get massacred by those psychotic birds. My grandfather was one of the sweetest men that ever lived. He would always have a big smile on his face and everyone loved him. I have only seen him angry one time in my life and it actually scared me to see him like that. I had discovered a story about something called the emu wars where soldiers were used to hunt down emus, and I was laughing about how ridiculous it sounded. My grandfather started screaming at me and telling me not to talk about something that I knew nothing about. He stormed out of the house while I stood there shaking in fear. A couple of days later he returned to our house to apologize for screaming at me. He could see the confusion on my face and I could tell how terrible he felt. I apologized for making fun of the emu wars as I just thought it was funny. He told me to sit down as he wanted to share his experiences with me. I sat down and waited as he began to tell his tale. I had joined the military when I was 18 as I had been living with an abusive father and this seemed like the perfect way to escape. I completed basic training and was assigned to a base. There was very little to do on a daily basis so we were constantly just training and having fun. Our base commander was an older soldier who didn't care about what happened, as long as no one did anything stupid. One morning we were all called out for an assembly and we were all quite excited as we hoped we might get some action. You could see the evident disappointment on everyone's faces as we were told that we were being mobilized to deal with a herd of emus. They were causing trouble for farmers and we were being sent to call them. We were told to be ready at 12.00 the next morning. Everyone was giddy the next morning as it seemed like a fun excursion. There were about 325 of us loaded into trucks as we headed out. It was a long tedious journey and the mood quickly darkened as the heat slowly wore down everyone's mood. There was very little to look at in any direction with only the occasional house. We finally stopped after almost an 8 hour journey and I could see the relief on the other guys faces as we jumped off the trucks. My legs were aching from not moving so long and I had to stretch for a minute to get some feeling in them. We were in a remote location with nothing to see in any direction. Our base commander approached us and explained that a herd of emus was seen about 10 miles from here and we would need to walk to get there as the terrain was very bad. He left about 50 of us back with the trucks while the rest of us marched along. We finally reached the summit of a steep hill and gazed down to see about 250 emus on the far side. The commander ordered us to set up our weapons. We all set up and awaited the order to fire. I was in very good shooter and lined up my rifle on one of the closest birds. The sound was deafening as we all opened fire. I watched as my bullet destroyed half the face of the bird I had been aiming at. Their gaze all turned on us and seemed to be challenging us. The bird I had shot seemed to be glaring at me with its one good eye. A few of the other soldiers took a few steps backwards as the stares from the birds made them feel uncomfortable. The commander ordered us to fire again and stop being such cowards. I once again targeted the same bird and watched in amazement as it somehow dodged the bullet at the last possible moment. Somehow with all of the bullets we fired only ten or so of the animals lay on the ground dead. I could see the hatred in their eyes as they gazed up at us. The commander was giving the order to fire another round when the animals suddenly took off running in the opposite direction. We stood there for a few moments watching them disappear off into the horizon. We were finally ordered to pack up our stuff as it was starting to get dark. We marched back in a disorderly fashion and were constantly on our guard as we could hear running feet on all sides. The emus kept appearing in small groups for a few moments before running away after we opened fire. I could hear the fear in the commander's voice as he ordered us to stop firing as we were just wasting bullets. We kept stopping for breaks as the rest of the company were scared and needed to go to the toilet all the time. It was almost pitch black when we arrived back to the trucks and we were met by scenes of carnage. The bodies of the soldiers that were left behind were strewn about the site with their insides ripped out. The trucks had been savagely attacked as there were evident scrapes and dents on all of them. Whatever had attacked them had taken them completely by surprise as many of them didn't have their guns in their hands. We were all standing there frozen in terror when one of the emus walked out of the shadows and began plucking out an eye from one of the bodies. I raised my gun to shoot it but it ran off before I got a shot off. We stood there not speaking for a few moments until the commander ordered us to set up a defensive ring and drag the bodies out of the way. Everyone began rushing around in pandemonium as we were just so freaked out. It took us almost an hour to move the bodies and then set up a defense around the trucks. I don't think any of us got much sleep that night as we were all on edge. I was awoken the next morning by panicked voices. I pushed myself off the rough ground and walked over to see what was going on. I listened to the conversation to discover that all of the bodies were missing as something had dragged them all off when we weren't paying attention. The commander told us to stop panicking and jump into the trucks so we can get out of here. We rushed to gather up our supplies and jumped into the back of the trucks. There was a sense of relief on people's faces as we knew we were finally getting away from this godforsaken place. The relief was short-lived though as none of the trucks would start. The damage that had been inflicted on them had rendered them useless. We stood around deciding what to do when a scream made us all spin around my mouth hung agape as i gazed at the thousands of emus that had somehow snuck up on us and now surrounded us on all sides we all began to back up against each other in a vain attempt to get away from them i recognized the bird i had shot earlier as it stood front and center amongst the others his face had name crippled by my bullet and as i seemed to be glowing it turned around and all of the other birds followed its lead None of us had even thought to raise our guns as we were just so terrified. It took a few minutes for everyone to relax as we were all still huddled together. The commander grabbed a map and discovered the nearest town was about six days walk from here. Most of our food supplies had been destroyed so we were ordered to grab anything that was salvageable and prepare to march. It took a lot longer to get ready than usual as people were fighting over food and water. It almost resulted in fistfights but the commander managed to calm everyone down by pointing out we had bigger concerns. We eventually started marching in a very complex fashion as we all were trying to use others as cover in case of another attack. We were constantly being hounded by the emus as they would suddenly appear in the distance before quickly disappearing from sight. We were all constantly on edge as we had never seen anything like it. We had probably been marching for three hours when the attack began. They just came out of nowhere and there were hundreds of them. I watched as one of them knocked the person beside me to the ground and then used its claws to rip his throat out. The attack was so sudden that many of us hadn't even had a chance to reach for our guns. I had managed to grab my gun and killed the closest emu to me. I was about to fire on another bird but they all suddenly fled. We lost another 40 soldiers in this attack. My kill had been the only confirmed emu kill. There were a few injuries but nothing severe so we continued to march after grabbing supplies from the corpses. Everyone walked along with their weapons ready in case of another attack. It slowly began to dawn on us that we might not make it out of this alive. We set up a camp that night with 25 guards on rotating shifts. I had the first shift and I could hear noises in the distance as they seemed to be circling us. I lay down on the ground after my shift and fell asleep instantly due to exhaustion. I was awoken by screams all around us and the sound of rushing feet. I grabbed my gun to discover the emus were launching hit and run attacks on us. I heard a noise behind me and spun around and fired my gun. I watched in horror as I looked at the commander's face and noticed the blood pouring out of the gunshot wound in his throat. He collapsed to the ground while the screams of agony and fear surrounded me. The next morning we discovered we had lost another 57 men. Five of them had died from friendly fire and I was thankful that no one realized I was responsible for the commander's death. We began to march but it was obvious that many of us seemed like they had already given up. The next few days were chaotic as we were being attacked every few minutes. There were less than 15 of us left alive at this point as the damn birds killed anyone they could get close to. We had passed numerous houses as we marched but we discovered that all of the inhabitants had been slaughtered by the birds. The bird I had shot at the start was always watching me from the distance and I felt like he was mocking me. We were barely able to stand and I suggested we take cover inside the next house as we can grab cover inside. It took us an hour to reach the next house which was a two-story. We quickly used what we could find in the house to try and make the house more secure. We pushed furniture in front of windows and used wood to barricade the doors shut. We were running desperately low on ammo as most of our supplies had been lost in our march. We grabbed knives and whatever else we could find to use as alternative weapons. We all looked at each other with a look of defeat as we all knew this going to be our last stand. We set ourselves up in different positions around the house in the hopes of holding out for as long as possible. We knew we didn't stand a chance against these demonic creatures as they seemed hellbent on wiping us out. The hammering at the outside of the building started just after it got dark. It was coming from all sides as the emus tried to force a way in. I heard the sounds of sporadic gunfire from upstairs as they fired down on top of them. It took less than an hour for them to get inside. We tried to use a choke point to funnel them so that we could kill them. Unfortunately this only worked for a minute or two as they breached the house from multiple locations. I was forced to retreat up the stairs and watched as they slaughtered everyone on the bottom floor. I locked myself in a bedroom and knew that I would probably die in here. I had lost my gun while fleeing and now my only weapon was a kitchen knife. The creatures had made their way upstairs and I could hear screams quickly being cut off in the other rooms. Everything was now deathly silent as I awaited my fate. I was near exhaustion and must have dozed off. I awoke the next morning to silence and wondered what had happened. I opened the door to find the house soaked with blood but devoid of bodies. I made my way downstairs and walked out the front door. I froze in my steps and felt my bladder release as I gazed out the door. Thousands of emus stood outside and they all gazed at me. The emu I had shot stood at the very front and he seemed to be smiling with what was left of his face. They suddenly all moved and a small gap opened up in between their ranks. I cautiously moved forward as I feared they intended to just surround and kill me. After I made it through they suddenly ran off into the other direction. It took me another two days to finally reach someone living. It took me another week to get back to my base. No one would believe me at first and a number of high-ranking officers arrived as they wanted to know how many so-soldiers could just disappear. They organized another mission with over a thousand heavily armed soldiers. They brought spare trucks to hopefully rescue any other survivors. I kept getting weird looks from the other soldiers as they thought I was somehow responsible for this. They stopped looking at me like this as we started passing the blood-soaked locations where we had been attacked. We eventually reached the trucks that we had originally used and were shocked to discover the mutilated bodies of the soldiers that had accompanied me. The officers looked bewildered as they didn't know how to react to this site. They all stood there with their mouths hanging agape as the hordes of emus suddenly surround us. They were soaked in blood and seemed to be challenging us. The officers quickly began issuing orders and the soldiers began to gather up the remains and load them into the trucks. We left the site as quickly as we possibly could while the emus watched from a distance. The military made up a ton of BS to cover up what happened and paid off the soldiers' families. I was then forced out of the army and threatened with prison if I ever said anything to anyone. I gazed at my grandfather in shock as he sat there weeping. He made me swear that I wouldn't say a word of this while he was still alive. I kept my promise as he passed away a few years ago and I finally decided to share his tale. Be careful of emus as there is something not quite right about them. My grandfather told me what happened when they raided the bunker My Dadashka, grandfather, Vladimir was in the Red Army during World War II on the Eastern Front from Stalingrad to Moscow to the Battle of Berlin. He had reached the rank of Lieutenant and immigrated to the United States in 1953. I was born in America but often made trips to Russia. I loved my grandfather dearly. He would help me with my homework and he grew excited whenever we covered the Eastern Front. He would give me a medal and explain how he won it. But there was one story he would always simplify. The Battle of Berlin. Every time I would ask, he would always tell me to go read a book or use the internet. I noticed he would always grow nervous whenever I pressed for details. His hands shook and his eyes bulged. I had never seen him so terrified in the time I knew him. Time went on and we slowly drifted apart. One day, I was working at a military hospital during my tour with the Russian army. When I got a letter from him, dear Mikhail, I am currently on my deathbed. As you know, I have been sick for quite some time. I will not leave this earth until I have told you what you always wanted to know. Your grandfather Vladimir. I reread the letter a few times. What I always wanted to know. I pondered to myself. I hadn't thought about Berlin for almost eight years. Nevertheless, I caught a plane to Moscow and I went to his house. The place had nearly fallen apart after years of disrepair. The bank didn't dare try to remove grandpa, mostly because they knew he was a veteran and he wanted to pass away here and partly because he had beaten a few of their agents back with a masin negent and a sword. I opened the door to his room, which by now was an old board. Grandpa, I said and I held his hand. He was now bedridden and he had an oxygen mask over his face. Mikhail. How good. Of you. To come he said as he breathed through the mask. I nodded. He tried to point to his medals. The Battle of Berlin. The proudest day in the history of Mother Russia, he chuckled. Then I noticed his face fall. It was a cold morning in Berlin that day. I was a captain at the time. Myself and Andrei Kochmarek led a division of the 1st Ukrainian Front. Andrei was my best friend. He shakily pulled out a picture of himself standing next to a young man in his thirties arm in arm. We had just pushed forward to the four bunker, shooting every single one of those cursed fascists. I took great pleasure in ending their lives. I thought about every single one of my comrades who had spilled their blood in the name of the motherland. He squeezed my hand tightly as tears streamed down his face. I only nodded. What else could I do? He cleared his throat. We cleared the rooms easily. Most of the Nazis were either executed by us or they shot themselves. But then Alexei found a secret door leading to an underground room. My intrigue was piqued. The things we saw. Decapitated and mutilated corpses. Severed limbs. Entrails around us. It was like an animal tour through these people. I looked at him. Why was the room there? i asked there were these creatures living under the bunker they looked very much like humans except their faces were contorted into wide grins They were 10 feet tall and had pointed ears and jagged teeth with misshapen limbs they were bald but extremely strong and had sensitive hearing his grip got tighter alexi had his throat torn out then eaten by one of the creatures Ivan had his arms ripped off. Kravchenko was disemboweled and dragged away. I wanted to throw up right then and there. I can still hear their screams as the creatures dragged my men away to be eaten. I looked at him. But how did you escape grandpa? I asked softly. I hid among the bodies. Whether they were blind or not I couldn't say. One of them approached me and sniffed the air. I can still recall its breath as I covered my mouth. It smelled of rotting human flesh and blood. And its eyes. Its cold. Soulless. Milky white eyes. They were. The worst part of all. They still give me nightmares. He took a deep breath. I made my way to the surface and told my commander about what had happened. He ordered we destroy the entrance so no one else would suffer the same fate. Then, I was sworn to secrecy under threat Stalin would shoot me if I said anything about it. I've kept this secret for more than 70 years, Mikhail, he said. I looked stunned. So that's why you never told me. So, what were the creatures? I asked. He thought about it for a minute. Whether it was one of Mengela's experiments or some kind of Thule ritual, I cannot say. But of this I am certain, mikhail they were not human i think they are creatures from hell he then fell asleep i left that night in a panic what if those creatures were still out there would anyone else find them what if someone released them the next morning i read in the obituaries that my grandfather passed away i then decided to take a trip to berlin I walked through the halls of the modern 4 bunker and went to the ruins of the entrance he had mentioned. Maybe it was just my imagination, but I thought I could hear something scratching against the rocks. Cold warrior here. Scariest thing to me was being up in my helicopter and having intercepts flown on me by fixed wing aircraft absolutely nothing we could do about it and clearly the most danger i was ever in we had several intercepts flown by soviet maze patrol aircraft similar to american p3s who tried to force us into the soviet navy vessels we were flying photo runs on i also was intercepted by a fully armed taiwanese f5 when our ship's position when they launched us pre-gps was 25 miles off putting us in taiwan airspace They flew several passes on us and would not converse with us on the military air distress, aka guard, frequency that ever military aircraft worldwide is supposed to monitor. We hightailed it back to the ship and hovered just behind the fantail until they set flight quarters and could take us back aboard. It's interesting reading about everyone's reactions to alarms. I have never heard anything in my civilian life that sounds like the distinctive bong, bong, bong of a destroyer's general quarters alarm which i am grateful for because that would give me the gut level response others have talked about here interestingly enough even though it was an aviator i only heard the flight crash alarm when tested at flight quarters so it doesn't have the terror for me you might expect 3500 hours of flying and i never heard a real flight crash alarm nothing that i saw but what could have happened was at bagram two years ago average of an idf every other day for our stint there one afternoon slash evening i was taking my time and was a bit later to get off shift when the idf alarms went off hit the dirt waited 30 seconds grabbed my body armor and went toward the bunkers multiple duds had impacted One hit a revetment probably no more than 100 feet away and another skipped across the concrete and into a clamshell tent. Had me and my co-worker left at our normal time, we would have been right in the path of the IDF that hit the clamshell and had it not been a dud I would not be here today. I've been home for a year and a half now and still loud noises bother me to some extent. I was 19 in Iraq 2004-2005. One time, our patrol got hit by IEDs and small arms fire. Right before, we were warned by another unit of a previous attack in which they lost a vehicle to an RPG. I remember passing by the wreckage, there was a mob of Iraqis surrounding it who then turned to stare at us when we passed. Later we lost a couple trucks, and none of our vehicles were armored back then. I was a gunner in the lead vehicle. With rounds flying around me, we had to around to find a missing person who ran out of his burning vehicle. This was all in the middle of the sandstorm we got stuck in. This was my very first mission of a year-long deployment. It was a very long long and tiring tour. I worked in the engine room on an aircraft carrier. I didn't see this firsthand, but I saw the aftermath and the photos and talked to everyone who was there at the time. So the generators in the ship are pretty big, think like a story tall, plus another for associated equipment, with a footprint of maybe 1.5 to 2 city buses side by side. One day some weird readings show up on one, nothing dangerous, nothing with a definite cause. Just some voltage fluctuations that got just up as weird, and something to keep an eye on. I don't think it was even out of spec, just, weird. Five minutes later it exploded. No, giant fireball in the engine room. From equipment that, TRN minutes prior, was functioning identically to the other three generators with no signs of imminent failure. Fortunately no one was killed or seriously injured but it could have been so much worse. BTW, someone is probably going to ask this, so no, there was nothing radioactive. By generator, I mean the part with a turbine on the end that turns steam into electricity, not the part with uranium. Never got to deploy, but was almost blown up once by friendly fire. During a massive month-long training exercise, my team was attached to provide security for the forward observer while the rest of the platoon got ready to mount a big L-shaped attack following an artillery bombardment and Apache gun run. So my team got to chill out and watch the whole movement and attack from the high ground. The forward observer called in the artillery. Perfect strikes then he called in the two Apaches. The first one Apache fires its rockets and the other fires its guns, perfect strikes. Then the pilots alternate roles to expend all their ammo. So the guy that fired guns now fires rockets. The Apache now firing rockets decides that now would be an okay time to not bother aiming carefully and here I am watching as these rockets are now slamming into the ground one by one climbing up the hillside towards my team, only stopping like 300 feet away from us. The forward observer was screaming over the radio wave off. Cease fire. I really think the pilot just conveniently ran out of ammo at the last moment. Almost became a statistic. Scariest thing I saw was what PTSD did to a friend of mine. We served in our first squadron together and this guy was easily the most popular guy around. Always smiling and joking. He worked the hardest and partied way harder than anyone. We were arrested together for underage drinking and while I was really stressed about the situation he was able to brush it off like nothing happened. He actually had fun and restriction. Anyway, we both left the squadron at the same time, His new squadron was already deployed so he flew out to Iraq to meet them halfway through the deployment. My squadron was due to head out the month they got back. The day I'm leaving for deployment I run into him at the next. He looks like hell. I tell him I'm getting ready to go and ask him what it was like when he was over there and he looks at me with a blank face, a face I had never seen from him. He tells me right when he gets there he's helping fill sandbags, going nights without sleeping taking mortar fire, and feeling completely helpless. He spent his whole deployment not working on aircraft, but instead sent Tad to help build bunkers because they were constantly under fire. My time in Iraq was actually very enjoyable. Eight tenths would deploy there again. My father was in the army and told me a fairly creepy story once. And my father is not a superstitious person mind you forgive my misused words i didn't serve so i don't know the lingo one night my dad was on guard duty in the barracks most everyone was asleep and it was late in the night he noticed a light on at one of the bunks and went to see what the man was doing when he got near he saw that he was reading a book the soldier reading the book was on the top bunk and told my dad to watch this He muttered a single word that my dad sounded like anale and the man on the bottom bunk who was asleep began to make a strange exhaling noise and then said what in a voice that my father said was definitely not his own my dad thought it was a prank and told him to shut up bedford to which he quickly sprang from the bed and said i am not bedford and shoved my dad bedford's eyes remained closed through the whole ordeal my father said that bedford was not the type of person to act this way. Thoroughly creeped out, my dad backed away and told the other man to shut the book and go to sleep. He then stayed away from their bunks, but said the man Bedford remained standing still for what seemed like hours with his eyes shut before lying back down. Bedford didn't recall a thing of it the next day. One week after enlisting, a soldier woke up in the middle of the night to pee. He had almost got out of bed when he heard a ball bouncing outside at the corridor. Fearing a commander prowling around, he quickly huddled back under the blanket and peeked out. What he saw was a small boy and his grandmother slowly moving from bed to bed and peering at the sleeping men. When they came to his bed, the soldier closed his eyes shut and pretended to be asleep. The boy looked at his grandmother and said, Grandma, this one's still awake. This actually happens periodically in my camp, though I'm not too sure to whom. Every night, there will be a patrol circling the camp. Two people per patrol. What happened was that when the patrol was in the guardroom preparing to switch with the next pair, a voice came from the radio, reporting that the patrol had reached checkpoint 3. That's impossible because the patrol was in the guardroom together with the commander. This one happened to me personally. My friend and I were prowling at the outskirts of the camp, along the fence that separated us from the forest. It was dark so all we had were were our torch lights. As usual, we were discussing about nonsense to pass the time. All of a sudden, I heard someone crying softly from the forest. I attributed it to perhaps some muffled animal cry, but the sobbing was slowly building up with more woman-like screams. Creeped me out and I dragged my buddy out on the pretense of needing to take a dump. There's one about a soldier being woken up by his buddy, as per regulation, to accompany him to the washroom. He grumbles expectedly, but follows anyway. About 15 minutes later, he shouts at his buddy to hurry up. The guy replies back not done yet. So he waits another 10 minutes, shouts again and receives the same response. After another 10, he's had enough and so he partially climbs up the partition to shout at his face for wasting his time. What he sees is his buddy, bending over the toilet bowl slowly consuming the feces left inside it's at this moment that his half awake brain reminds him that his buddy had taken medical leave right before lights out that night not wanting to antagonize whatever was in there he lightly says er i'm going back to bed okay you're probably almost done anyway to which his buddy replies you tired or do you already know I was in the US Army for 10 plus years, here's a story. During that time I traveled all over the world for deployments and training ops. I've seen a lot of the bad things the world has to offer, and a lot of the good. I was an infantryman, and sniper, and during my first deployment to Iraq, I spent a lot of time sitting on rooftops, or inside abandoned buildings. I would watch streets, city blocks, whatever, trying to pin down patterns of life, and get a better idea of what was happening out in sector. Often, my three-man team would get attached to a line platoon, and go out on a 24 to 48 hour mission to get eyes on an intersection or building where we suspected the enemy moved. 99.9% of the time everything went according to plan, we would either spend all day looking at nothing, we would get compromised at the break of dawn and get into a day-long gunfight, or if we were really lucky, we would get the drop on the bad guys and end up ambushing them. A couple times though, things would happen that really defied logic or expectation. Now, understand that throughout this whole period of my life I was almost always sleep-deprived, hungry, and under extreme levels of stress. I don't discount the idea that at least some of what I experienced was due to the above factors playing tricks on my mind or whatever. Oh. Also I've had one of two paranormal experiences from before the army, don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but worth mentioning. Baghdad, we were on a foot patrol to check out a part of our sector we rarely went to, not for any specific reason, the bad guys never went there, so we never went there. The whole area, about three city blocks, had been a Christian neighborhood before the fall of Saddam, but after law and order broke down completely, The Christians were either forced out or murdered. We were just going from building to building at night checking things out. We found this one house with a room on the roof that had been built separately from the main structure, which in and of itself was pretty common. What was strange was that this room had a door that was locked from the inside. It was a sheet metal door with a hand latch on the inside which you could lock with a padlock. For some reason this intrigued me and I had an urge to find out what was in there. So we proceed to go to town on this door with our breaching kit. It took about 20 minutes of solid work before we yanked this door open. First off, at this point I'm a seasoned combat soldier, seen some stuff, did some things, not easily spooked. This room scared me as soon as we opened the door. There was a single hallway leading back to a T-intersection. It was pitch black and the smell wafting out of there was like a butcher shop blood raw meat etc my hackles are up at attention at this point we enter slowly and spread out to check the structure there were several rooms all with dried blood covering the floor smears on the walls it was evident some horrific thing happened in here the last room contained an old metal bed frame with leather restraints and wires running off to the opposite corner where a car battery sat. Also there was an oppressive heaviness in the whole place, like the air had weight. We got out of there as quickly as we could. The strangest part was that it was locked with a padlock, and dead bolted from the inside, but there was absolutely no other way out beside the door. No windows, one door, locked from the inside. We never figured that one out, but I still think about it all the time. That same night we found another house locked from the inside, bullet holes all over the walls and please God help us written over and over on the wall in Arabic, the words were written in red ink, and I swear to God, one of the words was dripping wet red down the wall. Our interpreter said it was a bad place and we noped back to the cop as quickly as possible. Anyway, Therese more strange things I've seen but I'm on mobile and this is an ass pain to type up if terese any interest i'll share more from afghanistan and other parts around the fall of 2008 we were back from iraq and trying to settle back into the garrison mindset dial things back a notch as it were everyone was waiting to go on block leave for 30 days and come back ready for round two it was during that time I got promoted to sergeant and put in charge of my first fire team. Part of every new NCO's duties, is to provide the beer for a platoon-wide and or non-commissioned officer professional development class. Basically an excuse for all the sergeants to get blasted together and swap stories, share advice etc. One of the senior guys in my company had been in the army for quite a while, he had been to Somalia for Black Hawk Down, Kosovo bosnia and desert storm before oif, oif he told me about waiting on the saudi side of the berm waiting to go into iraq stealth fighters and bombers flying by overhead to knock out iraqi army positions the roar of paladins loosing their missiles against unsuspecting armor and infantry miles away they waited in that desert for six months before finally crossing into kuwait by the time they got there the war was pretty much over He was with an armored cavalry unit, and saw some limited action mainly against poorly trained and equipped conscript units in ancient Soviet tanks. The American war machine swept over those poorly defended positions easily, and within 72 hours the ground war was over. Now I know everyone has seen Jarhead and seen the news footage of the Highway of Death my buddy wasn't involved in that part of the ground action. His unit was part of the anvil the retreating Iraqis hit during their flight from Kuwait. After everything was said and done, they still spent the next few months on the ground basically cleaning everything up. He told me stories about clearing Iraqi bunkers, and trench complexes, sifting through the remains of entire companies wiped out and bombing or whatever. Up to this point, what he described was pretty typical of a major ground action but I still can't imagine finding myself in the position of being in a major conventional war." He went on to describe one day in particular, toward the end of his time on the ground, they woke up from their hastily dug fighting positions in the middle of the desert, wiped the grime out of their eyes, ate a quick MRE, and trucked to a destroyed Iraqi radar site. His platoon was tasked with collecting any intelligence they might find and collecting dog tags off of the corpses that littered what seemed like the entire kuwaiti desert they still had to be careful a handful of guys had already been killed by booby traps that the iraqis strung up before retreating they arrived on site and started their sweep there were dozens of charred corpses scattered around outside the site was a relatively deep and well constructed bunker that contained the cp and a trench line about 100 meters long strewn about were pictures of wives and kids personal effects letters books anything that hadn't been destroyed in the bombing was collected by the troops as war trophies or brought back to s2 for analysis he found himself alone down in the bunker it was a rectangular concrete box with a machine gun slit in the front think saving private ryan The roof was half collapsed, with a large hole punched through it where a bunker buster had burrowed down and incinerated the occupants. There was a dead Iraqi slumped across a DSSHK machine gun, the Soviet version of Out.50 California he said even then, he got a really creepy vibe down there. Aside from the dead machine gunner, there were the remains of at least three others in there, but they were closer to being completely atomized they must have been directly under the bomb when it fell. My buddy quickly snatched the machine gunner's dog tags off his neck, stuffed them in his pocket, and left back to the surface. Later on, the platoon was gathered together eating lunch in the scorched sand, he described it like Jarhead where every time he took a step it left a footprint of white sand in the blackened top layer. Anyway, the guys were comparing stories about what they had seen, and what trophies they had collected. They got down to the dog tags they had, and started comparing the number they had managed to collect. Some guys had a pile of tags, others only had a few, my buddy had the one set he found on the machine gunner. He went on to tell some friends about how creepy it had been in the bunker and how he felt kinda bad for that gunner, manning his position to the last, maybe covering his buddy's retreat in the face of the Americans. One of his friends asked what machine gunner? He had been down in the bunker and hadn't seen any bodies down there. Thinking his friend was mistaken, maybe there was a different bunker he hadn't seen. He went back after lunch to make sure. He stepped down into the bunker, and sure enough, there was the DSSHK, with no gunner. He said at this point his hair was standing on end, he was sure the dead guy had been there. That's when he noticed the drag marks through the charred topsoil. They led across the floor and up the steps to the surface. He followed them out away from the fighting position, about 50 meters. Lying in the sand was the gunner. His body was frozen in a low crawl position, left leg straight back, right knee cocked up, left arm reaching forward and raised off the ground as if reaching for something, maybe a way home. He assumed one of the sick men in his platoon had moved the body but when he asked no one fessed up. On the drive back, he realized the machine gunner had been facing towards the Iraqi border. During the Afghan winter, the war basically shuts down, and everyone takes a breather till spring and summer. The Taliban go into Pakistan, to rearm, and collect new recruits. That doesn't change the fact that patrols still need to go out. And the business of ver still needs to be conducted so my platoon gets this mission to go out and strike striker apcs and post up at the base of some hills on the afghan-slash-paki border we were told we would be there for three days tops it ended up being two weeks before helicopters came and pulled us out the second night we were there a massive snowfall happened and over two feet of snow dropped we were snowed in basically Our four vehicles were in a wagon wheel asses in, noses out in a circle to watch all angles of approach. Someone was always on guard in each of the trucks, scanning their sector with thermals and night optics. So there we were, stuck with nothing to do. The first day after the snowstorm which lasted two days, I lower the ramp on my vehicle and see fresh footprints weaving in and out of our perimeter, coming from outside, up the hill. Whoever was walking around was barefoot. Naturally I'm creeped out. No one was outside during the snow, except to use the restroom, and all their tracks were easily identified. The mystery tracks kept showing up randomly the whole time we were out there. Eventually I took a small patrol up the hill following the tracks that always led down, never back up. We got to the top of the hill and the tracks just ended. No explanation given. When we got pulled out I took a couple of the other platoons NCOs aside and warned them, they shrugged it off. By the time they got back two weeks later they all acted like nothing had happened out there, but one soldier told me the tracks kept showing up every morning, fresh. There were even muddy barefoot prints inexplicably crisscrossing the tops of the strikers. Here's another one, not so much creepy as it is unsettling. So I mentioned previously about how at one point decapitated bodies were showing up daily in Sector. Most of the time we would find them slumped over in the middle of prominent intersections, or in front of the one church in Sector. Our cop was a Catholic seminary that had been occupied and fortified after the cardinal was drug out into the street, shot, decapitated and immolated across the street from our tiny base was a catholic church run by an old priest we called yoda he was super friendly and always helped us out with info he used to push food and tea on us every time a patrol stopped by he also ran the religious services we started up for christians in the company he was a super sweet old guy and one night some men broke into the church took him out into the street and killed him after that We started running more patrols and night ops to try and catch the guys who did it. One morning a platoon got into a car chase with a group of men. They were trying to flee out of sector when we called in helicopter support and shot their car up. One of the guys died inside the car, when we found him he had melted into his seat, all that was left was a charred corpse, his eyes had burst from the heat of the blaze and were running down his cheeks. His buddy was lying in the street 50 meters from the burned-out hulk of the car, he had been literally blown out of his shoes, they were still on the road with his feet in them. The third guy had run off into the thick brush that lined the Tigris River. The helicopter shot about 30 rockets into the bush, in an attempt to flush him out, but all it did was set the forest on fire, we found his body two days later, burned to a crisp, curled up in the fetal position. We also found a single hut way out there, we would have never known it existed if the forest hadn't been burned away. Inside was a pile of human heads arranged in a pyramid shape, it was like a nightmare from Heart of Darkness. The heads on the bottom were decomposed enough that they were basically skulls, empty smiles leering up at us. They got progressively fresher towards the top of the pile, near the top was the weak old head of Yoda, the priest from across the street. I can't fathom the brutality that would lead a human to do that to another person. It was without a doubt one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. 911 dispatcher reporting in received a call from an elderly lady who had trouble breathing. I had taken several calls from her and her husband in the past. So I recognized her voice. I dispatched an ambulance to her residence and held her on the line trying to keep her calm while the ambulance was responding. Ambulance advised that they a 15-minute ETA, she lived in a very rural part of WV, I'm talking to her asking about her husband and how he was doing and just making small talk with her. The ambulance calls in and advises they are on scene and I let them know that she is in severe respiratory distress and I still had her on the line. I let her know the ambulance is coming to the door to go answer the door and she says okay and hangs up the phone. Pretty normal yeah? Well here's where it gets weird. The EMT and paramedic on scene call back about a minute later and advises no one is answering the door. We have a sheriff unit who was in the area pulling on scene about that time. The sheriff unit confirmed the address and advised he is breaching the door to make access to the PT. Five minutes go by and the paramedic on scene radios and asking who the caller was. I advise it was the elderly female who lived at the residence. He tells me that he's going to call in and needs to speak with the supervisor on shift. We get him over to the supervisor and the supervisor confirms the information that I gave him and asks what's going on. Apparently the elderly female had been dead for a while and was already in full rigor mortis. They thought I was wrong on the caller but the other dispatchers played it back and confirmed that it was the female who called. The ambulance transferred the hospital and we got the same calls in disbelief from the doctors. So, I took a call from a ghost. I am interning with the sheriff's police department so most of my time is spent on patrol. We got called out to do a wellness check which the deputy thought was going to be a piece of cake like she was out of town or something. We get there and are met by the neighbors who told us that the mail is pilling up in the mailbox and that there are several untouched packages on the porch. Okay so we go up the house and the front door is unsecured, so we crack open the door a couple of inches and the deputy calls inside, but the door won't move anymore. The house was one of those split houses where the stairs meet at the front door and the upstairs and downstairs are offset so we concluded that there might be stuff behind the door. It's about this time that the deputy tells me that she is a known hoarder and that could be why the door was stuck. He also mentions that if we see flies on the inside of the windows she is most likely inside and deceased. As we walk around the side of the house we notice a lot of flies on the windows. The back door was locked and as we looked in we noticed bags on bags of garbage diapers and miscellaneous all over the place. We head back to the front and attempt to make entry. He pushes the door open, this time with more force, and from underneath I see a grease-like liquid spreading out from under the door. The deputy stops, closes the door and calmly tells me that the lady was indeed dead, and wedged behind the door. From the dates of the packages we concluded that she had been gone about two months. Once we did make entry into the house I was allowed inside. After two months she didn't even look like a human corpse. Her skin and body had sagged and melted to the floor and her face, her face was all black and had been eaten to the bone by maggots. I'll never forget the smell when the coroners moved her and she popped. It was like a physical presence whatever those people get paid to deal with that stuff, it's not enough. The thing that really got to me though, was wondering if she had fallen down the stairs and died there, or if she fell and was unable to move and waited for help that would never come. Went to a welfare check. A neighbor called and he hasn't seen this guy for a few days and the lights have been on for a while. I go and look around and find no footprints or tire marks in the snow, recent storm. I checked the garage and nothing. I checked the house which was unlocked and found the guy's cell phone, keys, wallet and cash with the TV on. That's when I realized this was now a dead body search. I looked everywhere in and outside the house and around the garage. There were several old junk vehicles on the property but again, no tire marks or shoe prints or anything. I call all recent numbers on his phone and no one's heard from him. Only so much I can do so I issue a bowl and we start getting sick paperwork ready. Next day the day shift officer goes over to follow up. Turns out, The guy was plowing his driveway and either had a medical condition or something and either passed out or died on the spot and crashed the truck onto the other junk cars, which then caught on fire, edit, investigation leads to the fact this happens a week before I got this call, leaving only a pile of bones in the front seat covered in snow. I felt like crap for not finding him that night but it was really creepy knowing his remains were inches away from where I was searching. I'm not a cop but my dad just recently shared these stories with me. My grandfather was a cop in a small town in the 60s-70s. Late at night it was common for officers to pull over vehicles driving through town, especially if they didn't recognize them. He pulls over a bus load of people. He walks through and asks them where they are headed, yada yada. They were headed to California, it was Charles Manson and his group. Another story same grandfather, same stop a car passing through protocol. Asked the driver where he was headed, bs for a while and told the guy to have a nice evening. Few towns over guy gets pulled over again, shoots and kills the cop. Apparently he was doing this as he drove along, get pulled over and shoot the cop. When they questioned him he said he had been pulled over by my grandfather, but he was such a nice guy he didn't kill him, but he did have the gun sitting in his lap. I was called out to negotiate with a 17-year-old female who had barricaded herself in a bathroom with multiple knives and scissors, she'd done it right too, SWAT ended up going through the sheetrock wall. She wouldn't talk with me at all but had multiple graphic conversations with her mother, who took the easy way out three years earlier, and her dad, who's serving lots of years in prison for sexually abusing her. When Swat pulled her out she had completed multiple circumcisions on herself with the scissors, completely cut her nipples off, and had sodomized herself multiple times with multiple steak knives. The kicker was, she was talking the whole time and her tone or volume never changed. The pain never bothered her. Or, more likely, she never felt it. The human mind is scary. Not a cop but answering 911 lines. Had an open line of a guy yelping ow. In between thud noises. He didn't respond to anything I said. Turns out, those thuds were the sounds of him chopping off his fingers with a meat cleaver. Had a good Samaritan call about a guy pulled up in front of a medical center in his car. He had a travel blender plugged into his vehicle and he was bleeding heavily. He had chopped his dick off and put it in the blender. I forget the specifics as to why but it had something to do with a pending child molestation or rape case. Last but not least, the one that will stick with me, is the woman who called at around 8 in the morning on a Sunday telling me, in an eerily calm voice, that she had killed her baby by bashing his head into the floor because the devil was inside him. I didn't believe her. It was true. Edit, I didn't believe her as in, I didn't think she really harmed her children got a report of a missing husband he told his wife and family of six children that he was going to get his tires changed but never returned and this was 12 hours ago they had purchased another house in a neighboring community and the relationship with the wife was under pressure so the wife assumed he was staying at the other house and claimed he would never kill himself. The strange thing about this report though was that he emptied his personal bank account into his wife's this morning as well. The wife explained this off saying that they recently had a fight about finances, and he agreed that he was bad at money and maybe they should just have a joint account that she controls. On a hunch, I asked his 14-year-old boy if there were any areas in the mountains nearby that his father enjoyed going, and the sun identified a road about 10 miles away it was nearing midnight but i decided to drive to the top of this old and abandoned forest service road as i drove through the snow and started to climb the road i felt a gut feeling that i would 100 percent find this guy up there either thinking about or already acted out to take the easy way out the snow-laid gravel road had some sign of travel but no real indication of how fresh the vehicle tracks could be as i reached the top of the road after an hour of travel i was honestly surprised that i did not find his black truck i spent the drive back down thinking about gut feelings and how they are unreliable but that i somehow felt different about this one as i traveled up the road i did notice over a dozen smaller roads branching off but they were not mapped and i had already spent too much time on a single occurrence in a busy city with too few police officers nonetheless I decided to check a single of these secondary roads, and about 3-4s of the way down I picked a road at random to check, and sure enough my headlights lit up the back end of a black truck about 100 yards past the first corner. Even if I hadn't memorized the license plate beforehand, I wouldn't have had to run it, it was clearly his. I radioed that I had found the truck, parked my vehicle, and traveled the 20 feet to his truck with my heart beating like I was doing it at a sprint rather than a normal walk. What I found inside was a mess of brains and blood caused by a self-inflicted shotgun wound under the chin. I'll save you from the description. There was just something about that gut feeling while traveling this abandoned and quiet mountain road, followed by a sense of being tricked by the gut feeling, then finding out it was true by discovering such a gruesome scene having to wait three hours next to his truck waiting for body removal and then to end it all by having to go to the family who was expecting good news to deliver to them the worst news possible that makes me feel creeped out to this day I responded to a report of an unresponsive infant when I arrived all the family members were standing around casually in the front yard pointing into the house. I found the baby in the back room laying on her back on a bear mattress. I started CPR, but realized the baby was probably already deceased. We rushed her out to the arriving ambulance hoping they had a way to bring her back. I learned she was the mother's second suspicious Sid's death, and I had her other children removed from her care. The difficult part was when I left the scene and went to the ER to see what came of the situation. As I walked in and asked where she was, an ER nurse walked over to me and handed me the deceased baby swaddled in a blanket and told me to wait for someone to show me to the morgue. So I'm standing there in the ER in uniform holding what everyone thinks is a live infant, but rather, an infant corpse, and several people stopped by wanting to see her and commenting on how cute it is to see an officer holding a baby. I just smiled, but it killed me inside. I was ushered back to the morgue after what felt like an eternity, and told I had to wait with the baby until the medical examiner arrived. They took the blankets off and laid her on a stainless steel gurney and left me alone with her again. I lounged around the morgue for about an hour waiting. By the time I got home several hours after the end of my shift, because this call came out 15 minutes before the end of my 10-hour shift, I laid down on my bed and cried for a long time. My young daughter was in daycare, and my wife at work. I really needed to hold both of them, so the house felt incredibly empty. My daughter was only slightly older than the infant, and when I was looking at her earlier, I kept seeing my own daughter. I didn't get any sleep at all before going back in for the next shift later that night. One night at about 1130, this guy jumps off of a bridge into a bay. On the way down, he hits a guard rail and loses both forearms and the top of his head. One set of officers found his arms and set them aside. I was on the dive team, so we go collect his remains. While we check on his condition, we notice the brain is missing. This was me flipping up his scalp and taking a peek inside to find nothing there. It's very strange to look for something very important and not find it. Anyway, we bag him up and get him on the boat. Our supervisor tells us we have to at least look for his brains. Gross. So we dive and look around but the only thing we find is a piece of skull. And we had decided if we did find it, none of us wanted to grab it. My dad worked in a precinct with one of highest crime rates in NYC. I think it had the highest murder rate during his years on the job. Anyway, He won't tell us stories about what he's seen because they're mostly horrific and still give him nightmares almost 15 years off the job. However, I do remember he told us one story when he was really drunk. A woman in her 20s walked into her apartment building late from work one night and was waiting for the elevator. It opened, and the only person in there was a creepy looking guy. Though apprehensive, she got in and pressed her floor number but noticed that the basement button was pressed. Normally after 9 p.m maintenance would lock the basement button to prevent random people from going down there and messing with stuff. I guess someone forgot to lock it. The creepy guy ended up taking her down there, tying her up, and raping and torturing her for hours. He then took her apartment key, went up to the floor she'd pressed when she'd first gotten into the elevator, tried every door until he found hers, and took her roommate, also a woman in her 20s, into the basement where he continued torturing and raping both of them until dawn. Maintenance found them that morning, and my dad was a responder. Again, my dad never told us stories. This one might have stuck out because he has four daughters, but I think it's gotta be up there in creepy factor. Two adults reported missing, parents of two adult children, one male, one female. Alerts are in place for the missing people's credit cards. The father's credit card hits on a purchase at a jewelry store where an engagement ring was purchased. It leads us to the son who made the purchase of the ring. Son is questioned and confessed to killing both parents and burying them in shallow graves. The sun led us to the gravesite and we began the process of recovery. Both mom and dad had black garbage bags over their heads being held in place by duct tape around their necks. The sight of the bodies, especially their faces once the bags were removed and the smell is something I'll never forget. My father has been an officer for 20 plus years and this story is probably the worst thing he has ever had to do. My father and I were heading to the range one day to sight in our hunting rifles. We were in his police vehicle since we were going to the shooting range for local law enforcement personnel. Dispatch came over the radio to get an officer out to a 911 call of a possible dead body many of the officers joked over the radio that it was probably a prank or someone overreacting since it was around halloween the responding officer arrives at the scene and calls him that he is going into the woods to investigate a few minutes later he sends out a call confirming it's an actual dead body and to get the necessary resources sent out to assist then the responding officer personally calls my father because he recognized the body it was my dad's brother He had been having rough times and decided to end it by hanging himself from a tree 50 yards into the woods next to railroad tracks the second worst part was that he had been reported missing for a few months so by the time they found his body he was severely rotted the worst part was that my father had to go to assist in the removal and scene investigation that day was the first time i ever saw my father cry and i was in my mid-teens My department sends an officer to all rescue calls if one is available. We got a call late one night to assist rescue at a townhouse complex for a woman hemorrhaging. We didn't show up until rescue had already left with the patient. So we let ourselves into the residence and eventually found the bathroom, which was covered in blood. Blood on the walls, all over the toilet, everywhere. Crazy amount of blood rescue hadn't mentioned anything suspicious on the radio, so this was surprising. We were preparing to leave when one of the younger officers noticed bloody footprints leading to the front door, and then across the parking lot, to a dumpster. We gathered at the dumpster, lifted up the top, and lit up the interior with our flashlights. Same officer extended his baton, reached into the dumpster with it, and brought out a bloody plastic grocery bag, with a dead baby in it true story my cousin is a cop and he responded to a call on valentine's day night a 12 year old girl called in to say her mother had blown her brains out in the living room i guess her and her brother were getting ready for dinner and the mom just shot herself he said the creepy thing about it was dinner all set up drinks on the table and suddenly she shot herself. Kids were sitting outside when he arrived, to this day I can't imagine Valentine's Day for them. But I know that is something that stuck with him seeing that. Detention officer at a local jail here. We had a guy get brought in about 2 AM one night who we immediately knew was about to give us a fun time based on the way he was moving, quickly snapping the head back and forth, looking all over the room, etc. One of my co-workers and I stay with the booking officer to help her out when the S inevitably hits the fan. The guy keeps rambling on throughout the whole process, parts of his speech are understandable but most of it is gibberish. At one point he looks up at my co-worker and says, would you blame me for it? Trying to keep the guy calm, my co-worker tells him, nah, man, no one can blame you. For whatever reason this set the guy off. He leaps off the bench and we both push him back down. My co-worker is trying to get handcuffs on his other wrist, he was already handcuffed by one hand to the bench, and I'm holding him against the wall with every bit of strength I have. This mother f was strong. I swear the bench was about to come up off the concrete when he first leapt at us. Once my coworker gets handcuffs on him, we take a step back. The guy throws his head back, eyes rolled all the way back, and lets out an inhuman scream that I've only heard in movies about demon possession. He then moves his head as if he's looking around the room, but still with his eyes rolled into the back of his head and spouts off more nonsense. I'm not Catholic but I was very tempted to cross myself. The screaming, head throwing back and I rolling continue on for about 45 minutes. Every so often he'd come back to reality and talk to us like a normal person for a moment and then go back into crazy mode. I was new on the force and sent to a home invasion in progress late in the night. I noticed my training officer didn't seem to be too concerned and responded slowly as opposed to the normal emergency response for crimes in progress. Upon arrival he asked me if I had been to the home before. After I said no, he told me to go handle the call. As I walked towards the home, the garage opened and an elderly lady who was bent at a 90 degrees angle at her waist hobbled out. Without looking at me, she said to hurry due to the fact that the two black male suspects were still in the home, she used much more colorful and racist language. I noted that she couldn't straighten her back and realized she was a bit off mentally. I then walked into the home with her behind me. While my eyes adjusted to the interior, I heard a click. I turned to find the lady locking two padlocks on the interior of the door. I then noted, as we were within the kitchen, That every cabinet and pantry also had a secured padlock on their doors i looked down the hallway and found that every interior door of the small home was shut and secured with padlocks i followed the elderly woman down the hall to the second door on the left she began to unlock the padlock to the door and shouted they are in here to my surprise within the room there was an older white guy sitting at a table using a desktop computer he looked at me greeted me, identified himself as the woman's husband, and then went back to whatever he was doing. The woman then pointed at an empty chair and began to yell, they are under the chair. Oh no. They just ran outside right there. The woman was pointing at a wall. After waiting for the woman to lock her husband back into the room, and then waiting for her to let me out of the kitchen door, I cursed my training officer and high-tailed it out of there. That was my first exposure to mental illness and it was creepy. My training officer said the woman had supposedly been raped by two black males years ago which had caused her mental break and her animosity towards those of the race. I was a parks officer for a downtown metropolitan out in the Pacific Northwest. I saw my fair share of weird stuff on my 1700 to 0100 shift. Naked bike ride after party at midnight with about a thousand or so naked people chilling out, the occasional couple having sex, homeless person masturbating or shooting up heroin and the occasional dead body were all a normal part of the job. Anyways, this one night we were sent to investigate a tent set up relatively near the waterfront which was generally a homeless person that was trying to stay dry for the night. So we get there around 2330 and tell the lady inside that she has to go a few hundred yards away to an area that isn't patrolled. She fusses and cries about having to move then mentioned a man living in a cave at the bottom of a shallow ravine nearby that's been killing small animals and eating them. We ask her for more information and she points to a general area about 50 yards away through some thick brush, the general area most people wouldn't wander past. My partner and I start to walk through the thick brush with just our flashlights and eventually stumble upon the ravine, and sure enough there is a small opening on the side enough for a person to fit in. I scale down about 20 feet and peek inside the opening and see what seems like a massive pile of magazines torn pages articles of clothing a sugar cookie tin a gorilla costume hand some crude looking tools including a makeshift bow a few knives and other generally weird stuff being curious and that the cave was empty i opened the sugar cookie tin and found a large amount of what seemed like raw animal meat at this point i was thoroughly freaked the f out and decided to unass the area and inform the police of what i had found we didn't carry weapons We never found out what came of the guy who was staying there or what was going on there. But definitely freaky at around midnight in pitch black conditions. It was a stormy night on the Oregon coast. A lady was driving drunk and ran into the back of a park school bus. When she did, her car caught on fire, but she was able to escape. When I found her slowly walking down a side street, I was telling her to stop and turn around. When she turned around, her lower jaw was gone, and she was totally dazed. Her tongue was sticking straight out the top of her neck, and she was trying to talk. She ended up surviving but needed tons of plastic surgery. not a cop but my dad's friend is and got totally hammered at our house a few days ago and told us about one of his first rough calls was a little girl who had came to school with hair missing from her head and apparently her dad abused her and ripped it from her head who knows how and why and so police got involved and when the parents didn't come to school they went to the house and found the mom so badly bloodied and with both eyes so swollen she couldn't see out of them her daughter couldn't even recognize her dad had apparently not wanted her to go to school because he knew teachers would get suspicious but mom sent her anyways he woke up in the morning and found out she had sent her and just went ape on her dad had locked himself in his room upstairs man jumped out the window and made it pretty far until he ran into a k-9 unit and tried to make a run for it and the k-9 tore his legs to shreds never been so happy to hear the asshole got what he deserved Not a happy ending for the girl though. Update, wow this blew up a bit. My little sister goes to school with the girl and there was assemblies at school to raise awareness for domestic and child abuse. She is still in care of her mom and it turns out she's pretty normal. It's just that her dad and evolved into deep alcoholism and is pleading guilty for several different charges. military police officer, so I worked both law enforcement and corrections for a bit. In corrections the main office was also the police services desk. Often it would ring and no one would be at the other end. Anyways one time it rang and instead of a number it had a descriptor that I don't remember exactly. Something like emergency phone 11. I was new and immediately called my superiors about it they told me to drop it and never report anything like that again ominous right anyways the reason i told that is to tell this some time later on patrol i got dispatched to essentially an abandoned side of the base to respond to an emergency phone call no location at first because radio didn't know where emergency phone 11 was and was new to the base so he didn't get the same memo to not report those calls radio then went on to say that the caller had sounded frantic and thought they were being chased meaning that someone had actually been on the other end radio eventually digs up some old maps that label a emergency radio 11 location and relays them to me and my partner so we drive there in a hurry there is no phone just a broken pole where one had once been that was a fun one to report Ex-cop. I worked in a high-tech task force agency conducting computer forensics investigations. Lots of child... Lots. Anyways, we were doing a multi-agency search warrant sweep in large metro area in California. We serve a search warrant for distributing slash possessing CP at a residence in a semi-decent area, and the suspect fit the prototypical Hollywood child molester look. He lived with his disabled wife, no kids, and she had mobility issues, mostly stayed downstairs, and had not been upstairs for years. We go upstairs, and this guy has a legitimate masturbation station set up in one of the bedrooms that had an outside padlock on it. It was dark, the windows were covered, and he had baby dolls with their assholes cut out all over the room and some of their mouths cut out for impromptu baby sex doll some of the heads were removed and scattered on the floor this guy had serious issues working third shift on halloween night i'm out by one of our smaller lakes just outside the city limits kids love to go out and drink which is surrounded by some very nice houses Going through the neighborhood each of the roads ends at a small two-lane road that surrounds the lake. I'm slowing to the stop sign and already starting to look to my right to make the turn when my headlights start tracing the rock wall that surrounds the lake I catch something out of the corner of my eye in one of the large trees that dots the walk path. I back up to see what it was and I see a guy hanging. At first I thought it was a Halloween decoration. The neighborhood is really into decorating for every holiday, so I stop, get out and as soon as my flashlight hits him I realize, nope, no decoration, he dead. As I'm standing there getting ready to call it in, I notice a gaggle of kids coming down the street trick or treating. As soon as they see my car they start heading my way faster so I book it back up the block to meet the parent walking with them and tell her she needs to take the long way around the block the other way she can see it on my face i'm not kidding turns out he was a 20 year old that was devastated about his girlfriend breaking up with him and she lived in the last house on that block where she would see him the next morning when she looked out her window not a cop myself but my dad is and i asked him this one time he told me it was when he went to this one house because a woman had called and said that men were breaking into the house. He gets there and he said it was immediately very clear that the woman was not exactly altogether mentally. He said she kept mumbling things and was very jumpy and skittish, not to mention that every single wall of her house apparently had at least six or seven crosses on it, if not more. He calms her down checks around the house for any signs of entry or just anything weird and there's absolutely nothing that would indicate that anyone had been trying to or had been successful in breaking in. He said she followed him around the entire time and would point to things, like a doorknob or window latches, and say oh that's not where I left it. That's how they got in, he said the whole thing was fairly eerie, considering he was at this woman's house in the middle of the night surrounded by crosses and listening to her mumble on about random stuff. To make her feel better, he did a sweep of the whole house to see if there was anyone else inside, which there wasn't. He said the one thing that made it creepy for him was the fact that every few minutes she'd say something like oh they're here again, or he's right behind us, I can feel it. ex-military police here, responded to a call of a woman with blood between thighs and t-shirt screaming in the yard. I'm first to arrive, she was the wife of serviceman, raped brutally. Was notified in route that there were also three dependents in the house. Unknown ages, but under 18 years old. Get wife on the ground, backup arrives, ambulance are in route. I proceed to enter the house with sidearm drawn serviceman is unconscious living room floor pool of vomit around his head two children holding themselves on the couch in absolute terror i gather up the kids and get them outside with the mother the situation is surreal and i'm completely over my head i re-enter the house the state of it was hellish like a bomb of cigarettes booze maggots diapers and rotting food had been detonated i have to find third dependent stop and check if serviceman was alive had pulse make my way to the back room there is a crib no noise i try to mentally prepare myself to see a dead baby i approach the crib and see the baby asleep i can see chest raising and lowering partial relief dried poop encrusted the backs of its legs butt and back the baby had not been bathed in some time virtually abandoned Ambulance is now outside, I demand someone to get the infant. The base ombudsman woman arrives, she panics. I call my supervisor, who was on leave. Told him to get to the scene as fast as possible. My aspirations of continuing a career in law enforcement after my enlistment ended right there. Not a cop but a correctional officer in Texas. One time a guy slit the forearm side of his elbows, where it bends. He laid there in a big puddle of his own blood. I was one of the responders that day. I'll never forget it. As soon as you entered the cell, the smell just hit you. Blood has a strong metallic smell, which I never realized before. He'd been laying there a while, so the blood had coagulated which again, I did not expect. As we lifted the barely conscious guy out of the blood, the blood fell off his body in chunks, like jello. It was pretty disturbing because I didn't expect any of it nor was I able to mentally prepare for it. We're not really medically trained, so all of it was completely surprising to me. Got a call that someone wasn't answering their phone or the doorbell. We got to the house and noticed that every window was blinded by either curtains or pieces of paper. We rang the doorbell and yelled through the letterbox but there was no answer. We opened the door and got inside. In the house it looked like someone just had lunch. There was bread on the table and juice or milk in the glasses. Children's toys scattered all around. Then I saw a note that gave me the chills. It was a death note. As the door was locked from the inside, the person had to be in the house. We checked room by room and my heartbeat was at 300% when I checked the bathroom. Preparing myself for slit wrists or throats I opened the door slowly, but there was nothing. Finally one more room left which was the attic. We walked slowly up the stairs and we found the resident there, hanging from a beam. I will never forget the adrenaline I had, The scene in the living room where the resident I found. Grandmother's story. Retired homicide detective. Couple call police because they are missing their baby. Grandmother and partner show up to investigate the house. It's just the husband, wife, newborn and dog that reportedly live there husband is angry and wife is visibly shook understandable they are missing their child my grandmother's partner find bits of blood near crib as well as more blood near the dog house outside after pressing the couple mainly the wife they come to find out that in a fit of rage from not getting any sleep from the baby crying husband picks the newborn up and smacks him against the wall repeatedly until the baby stops crying They didn't know what to do so they fed the now-bludgeoned baby to their German Shepherd. My grandma has seen some stuff. This next story is extremely graphic and gore. If you're easily scared, just skip it. Beware. I was an MP in the army many years ago, and I believe it was 2005 when this happened. Shortly after our shift started we were called to secure a crime scene in one of the on-post housing areas for lower enlisted folks. When we arrived on scene we were given a very vague overview of what occurred by the first respondents and CID investigators present. A 19-year-old infantryman, fresh off deployment, brutally stabbed his young wife to death. I think she was maybe 17 or 18 years old. Too damn young either way. We were obviously given very little information because the investigation had just started, but while securing the scene from the exterior we were able to see the aftermath of everything that had happened through the windows and open doors, and what we were able to see was straight out of a horror film. The back door of the house was left open and one of the first things you noticed on approach was a bunch of tiny bloody paw prints on the back porch. Looking further into the house you could see dark blood stains on the carpet that looked like a body had been dragged across the floor, again with tiny bloody paw prints scattering the scene. Turns out they had a tiny dog that ended up roaming through the aftermath scattering the tracks around, going to the front of the house and looking through the kitchen window is where we saw the real bad stuff. The body had already been removed by the time we were able to get this view, but you could tell where she finally died. There was a giant pool of blood on the floor with what I could only call a halo of kitchen knives in a circle around where her head was. Blood was absolutely everywhere. On the fridge was a note scrawled in blood that said Satan said she deserved it I absolutely kid you not. Several days of securing that scene later they finally officially closed it down and boarded up the home. The body was being held at the post morgue and we ended up needing to put a guard in the morgue to secure the body until the formal autopsy could be completed. I was the lucky son of a bee that pulled body duty when the autopsy occurred. I was asked to sit in on the procedure and it was easily the most horrifically graphic thing I have ever, and hopefully will ever, witness. This poor girl was destroyed. Her husband stabbed her something like 50 to 60 times. The first thing you noticed was the meat cleaver stuck in her neck. They just left it there. Just above the cleaver her lower jaw was basically gone. I couldn't tell you how it was removed, but her tongue was just resting on her neck. The second thing you noticed was the absolutely perfect pentagram that was carved into her chest. They'll never forget how perfect that circle was, and how the angles of the star looked like they were made with a protractor. This sicko took his time to do this to her. The third thing I noticed was her hand. It looked as if she had put her hand up in front of her face to block a strike and caught the cleaver across the palm. Three of her four fingers were dangling from a flap of skin barely still hanging on. This all seemed too much but it got worse. As the medical personnel continued to catalog the damage, they noted what I think was the absolute worst of it all. I apologize again for the detail. They ended up pulling out a 14 inches long knife sharpener out of her vagina. The hilt of which wasn't even visible from the exterior of the body. He had inserted this into her and then they believe he had literally kicked it into her. They believe she had already been dead by the point this happened. I don't know how, but that was somehow almost relieving to hear at that point. The week or so securing that scene was creepy for sure. But the several hours of time spent in that autopsy made me question humanity, and really changed my perspective on life as a whole. Two combat tours in Iraq, and this was probably the worst thing I had experienced during my time. It's actually really odd putting it into words for the first time so many years later. Didn't intend for this to be so long. Sorry for that. I was working in the crime unit, aka detective, for the state police agency I work for and patrol got sent to one of the small towns in the county I worked in for a report from neighbors in a series of row home apartments that there was an unbearable smell coming from a second floor apt. Patrol made entry and found the subject deceased from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. On the way there, the coroner calls me. She ran with a local EMS crew and was on scene with the first responding trooper, and said bring your hazmat suit this is a bad one. I got there and I could smell it from the street. I went upstairs and as I passed the wave of flies I entered his bedroom. What I saw really couldn't be described as human. It was in the middle of July 90 degree heat and the dude was black as a black cat. When I got close I noticed something odd. He had melted to the floor. The female forensic service girl said too, why is his skin moving? Yup, thousands of maggots were now under his skin which gave it the appearance that his skin was bubbling and moving. And yes, the gun was pried still to his right hand. It took the fire department shovels to scrape this guy off the floor. Not to mention the smell. Trust me, I have been to swamp bodies, lake bodies, heat bloat but nothing like this crazy things we see sometimes. Christmas morning 2004. The police station received an odd call from another station 600 kilometers away, saying that a young man in his late teens had handed himself over to them claiming that he had shot his grandmother the night before, and drove all the way to the coast, Johannesburg to Durban. I was the detective on call that day and since there was no immediate police van in the area me and my partner had to go check it out. When we got to the address we found a locked house with no answer. Knowing it might have been a prank call I started walking around the house looking for an open window or some kind of evidence to support the call, not wanting to blindly break down a door based on a phone call alone. So I managed to pry open a bedroom window and what I saw inside gives me chills still today. It happened to be the master bedroom and there inside, looking right up at me was a bloodied face with big, bewildered eyes. Broke down the door and found the lady in her bed, still alive. She had been shot in the head the day before by her grandson who was living with her, and somehow managed to not die and instead, just lie there helpless. Her bedroom tv blaring in a foreign tongue she was a french immigrant the whole house reeked due to her soiling herself and while waiting for the ambulance to arrive i used some of her perfume to spray the room so i could do my investigation but that just made it worse the smell of feces and perfume fused to form a smell that i would never forget it was a common perfume and from that day on it was hard being around anyone wearing it it would trigger the accompanying feces smell which in turn would conjure those eyes, pleading for help through the bedroom window. She died later that week in the hospital and the grandson was charged with murder. He had shot her with a .22, stolen the neighbor's car and made his way to Durban, on his way there being overcome with guilt he decided to hand himself over. Boy did I have an interesting story to tell the family at Christmas dinner. I was in the academy and doing a ride along with my sheriff's office for experience. We were just finishing up dinner when a call went out for a Signal 7 death on the local interstate. Scene was less than 2 miles from where we were. Roll over to the scene and the local PD is there, looking at the gigantic light pole that had brain matter on it from the impact of the car, which had split in half. I walk up beside PD and ask where the Signal 7 is. Look down. Less than six inches from my feet is the driver of the vehicle laying in eight inches of weeds with his head split open like a tomato. Death reconstruction and eyewitness accounts indicate that the young man was driving at a high rate of speed, 75 to 80 miles per hour in the right lane of a three-lane northbound interstate, got distracted by talking on the phone, and overcorrected when he drifted into the middle lane. Overcorrection resulted in his vehicle losing traction, striking a light pole with an 8 feet diameter, lights are mounted about 150 feet up, around the driver's side B pillar, between front and rear door. Car was split in half with the driver's head being wedged between the kinetic energy of the still moving vehicle and the stationary resistance of the light pole as the car was split. His head looked like a tomato in a vice. The two halves of the car went approximately 500 feet down the road, in 45 degree opposite directions, and his flip cell phone was found about 200 feet from his body, still open and working, caller had hung up. My dad was a Chicago cop in the 60s slash early 70s and two stories stick out, one creepy, one just butthole puckering. Creepy, he and his partner get a call from neighbors to a frequent flyer domestic dispute at a rundown apartment building. They arrive and, of course, the lights aren't working the stairwell. They head up to the apartment and, when they get there, they open the, cracked, door and the kitchen looks like a horror movie. Blood everywhere, surrounding one very obviously dead guy in the middle. Countless stab wounds, slit throat he used the phrase it looked like a bear had ripped the guy's neck apart quick check of the lack of pulse and clear of the apartment later they walk out and see bloody footprints heading further up the stairs head up turn a corner and see the woman standing on the next landing covered in blood holding the knife at chest level point up in front of her face and just staring blankly at them she was basically catatonic until they transferred her to the mental ward after which his interaction with her stopped. Pucker factor, he and his partner worked New Year's Eve and were assigned to the hospital. They were standing outside in a trailer that had been set up for triage, just casually chatting away, when a bullet plinked through the roof of the place and landed between the two of them. They decided then was a good time to go hang out with their friend the pathologist, who was working in the basement morgue. Better to be hanging out with dead guys than be a customer. A couple years ago, as a criminal justice student, I went on a ride along with the police in a mountain town, southwestern US. We get a check the welfare call, the guy was a drinker, wasn't picking up his phone, and hadn't been to work in a few days, so his family called 911. We get to the apartment, Abed things started to go bad quickly. The cop breaks the lock and opens the door and the stench of death rolls out and smacks me in the face. The carpet is mostly torn up, bed bugs, we were told, so at this point my skin is in full crawl. We climb up the bald stairs that led into the kitchen and every flat surface is covered in empty beer-tall can. The floor is a sea of blue aluminum and the stench of decomposing flesh is unbearable. We enter the bedroom and find the body. This I was not ready for. The guy, partially naked and probably very drunk, had slipped, hit his head on the hot radiator and passed out on top of it. The radiator, in turn had cooked his body on one side until it had burst open like a rotten meat balloon all over the floor and wall. Dried blood and flies buzzing all around. Easily the most horrific and gut-wrenching experience of my life. When I was a probation officer, my first field day with my field training officer, we responded to another officer's house call. That officer put out over the radio to reserve traffic for emergency traffic only. We did this if we had a potentially dangerous situation occurring. Well, I get to the house, along with about 10 other POs, and the family is sitting in the living room while the case manager is asking about a suspect. I'm told that the suspect possibly ran outside into the backyard where a pit bull is loose, so my field training officer and I go into the backyard to clear the area. Once we get to the backyard, we hear a loud crash and everyone screaming from inside he house We run back in and see the suspect lying on the ground in the living room, covered in insulation and dry wall, with one of my friends underneath him trying to get up. Turns out this guy was hiding in the attic, and according to my old supervisor who went into the attic to check it out when he heard noises, my supervisor said it was like watching a cartoon. The guy stepped off the beams, put his hands up, and fell through the roof in front of his family and a ton of officers. I guess all in all not too creepy, but it scared the Jesus out of the family and all the officers in the house when it happened. It was an interesting first field day to say the least. My brother-in-law has been in law enforcement in various capacities for over 20 years. At one point he was a training officer. After he's passed a candidate he always lets them know that they can reconnect with him and ask questions if they have a tough judgment call. So he has a guy first week on the job working a morning shift. At turnover he finds my bill and tells him that he had a domestic call where an ex-husband showed up at his ex Mills residence and threatened to kill his wife. Things didn't turn physical beyond grabbing each other and he served the guy a restraining order right there. He tells my bill that he didn't know if he did enough and feels bad about it. He gives enough details I guess, that later on when my bill is on patrol and hears the address over the radio he knows that some bad stuff has gone down. He is first on scene and the ex-wife is in the front yard shot in the leg. She's screaming, but it's nonsense. The front door is open when he enters the x mill is on the couch shot in the head he goes down a hallway and their young son is in his room shot and killed in the master bedroom the man is holding his daughter after a murder by oneself when the mom gives a statement later she says that he shot her in the leg and dragged her outside saying this is your fault you're the one who has to live with this darkest thing i've ever heard 27 years as a patrolman and multiple tours in Vietnam, this is the one that still haunts him to this day. He received a call in the afternoon to respond to a barricaded gunman, possible death situation. After he made it to the residence and and his backup arrived, he and his partner carefully entered the home. They cleared each room, slowly working their way down the hallway towards the only closed door in the house, the master bedroom as soon as they announced themselves bang and then the heard someone running across the hardwood floor thinking it was possibly someone fleeing the scene they quickly positioned themselves and kicked down the door what they saw still turns him ghost white to this day the man took his own life but the self-inflicted gunshot didn't completely sever the brain from the brain stem the body was leaning against the wall legs still moving the body eventually slid to the ground but his legs kept moving for a few minutes he says that he will never forget the sound one cold october night we got a call to assist the sheriff's office on a burglary in progress out in the county because our radios couldn't talk to the county radios the county dispatch telephoned our dispatch and our dispatch radio relayed the info to us. We basically had no info and didn't know where we were going, and I had a lonely, eerie, creepy feeling in my bones while driving at crazy speeds to help this family. It took us probably 25 minutes to arrive on the scene. The house was dark. It turned out that the suspect had cut the power days before and had been living in the house while the family of four was on vacation walking through the yard to the front door i could hear the a man yelling get out of my house please politely but firm and loud i walked in and found an obviously mentally unstable young man dirty bearded wild eyes calmly almost whispering i was sent i am supposed to be here this the place this is the place i was sent here you will be sorry he didn't respond at all to verbal commands But he also didn't resist at all when I put the cuffs on him. It was like he was looking through me while I was questioning him and searching his backpack. I was honestly freaked out, even though I was significantly bigger than him. It was just unsettling. I didn't even want to put the guy in the back of my car, didn't want to have my back to that tricky bastard. His backpack was full of miscellaneous items, a notebook full of drawn monsters and rambling writing, a hunting knife, clothes that couldn't have been his, mail from different addresses and names, Kid's school math book. It was just weird. Eventually a county deputy arrived and took him away. I never did hear anything else about it. This reminded me of another time. I was very new and ended up having to babysit a TDO while waiting for mental health services to arrive. It was just he and I in a tiny interrogation room. He was bearded, dirty erratic eyes were creepy he gave me the creeps whenever i would ask him a question like nice night huh he would respond by stopping whatever fidgeting he was doing looking up to an area in upper corner of the room and nodding and mumbling before looking at me and answering the question it was like he was getting his orders from an invisible demon hovering in the corner i was genuinely afraid this nutcase was going to overpower me take my gun and go on a killing spree. I was just out of the academy, and this guy was clearly capable of violence. The on-call mental health person that night was a smoking hot, young, thin girl, who immediately sat right beside him and put a sharp pencil in his hand. I was positive that I would be wrestling that pencil from his hand later, but he calmed down when she arrived. Weird. small town cop one time we had an elderly woman with dementia call at like 3 a.m. and say there was a baby hanging in her grandfather clock i got there and it was a pretty big house and she had a single light on in the living room making it even creepier when she points out the clock it's quite obvious she is hallucinating but just imagining what she was seeing gives me the creeps ever since starting this job I have extreme sympathy for those with dementia or schizophrenia. I never knew what they went through before I started working as a cop. Them seeing or hearing people in their house in the middle of the night, I couldn't imagine. We also had a guy in a plow truck get hit by a train during a snowstorm. Obviously, fatal accidents happen every day, but the call came in as a train hitting a plow truck, no injuries. So when I show up, i start calmly walking up to the tracks thinking the train just clipped the truck or the driver got out before the truck got it and it would be a routine accident nope i got to the tracks see a mangled plow truck in a small pond next to the tracks and a yellow jacket floating with two boots sticking out of the water the driver got ejected when the train doing 65 miles per hour hit the truck and died instantly I let out a WTF then had to compose myself and call out what I was seeing on the radio. Little tough. Finally, I'll never forget my first unresponsive person call. I was 23 years old and a week out of the academy, still obviously riding with my training officer. Got to the house before the medics and it was a 30 years old male. He was completely naked in bed with three fans blowing on him. My FTO gave him a little sternum rub and he opened his eyes and started moaning. Being the new guy, I get sent downstairs to talk to his mom about any medical conditions he had or medications he was taking. Medics get there and start bringing him down the stairs. He's white as a ghost, his eyes are wide open, and his mouth is hanging open. I hear my FTO say he doesn't look good and one of the medic answers he's not, he just coated, not breathing no pulse. Creepy thing is, as they were bringing him down the stairs, he was looking right at me. First time I've ever seen the emptiness that comes with someone who is technically dead. Happy ending though. Medics brought him back while on the way to the hospital. Not a police officer, but here's a second-hand story. About five years ago, my mom was dating a guy who used to be a diver for a certain Texas police department, or maybe fire department, I don't really remember. I won't name the city to protect privacy. This story occurred about seven or eight years before I was told. Anyway, so they get a call one day about a boat that is capsized in the Gulf. There were three people, parents and child, on board the parents managed to make it to shore. The child did not. The surface of the area had already been swept, the kid was nowhere to be found, which unfortunately meant that the mission had gone from search and rescue to recovery of the deceased, hence the need for the divers. Two days passed and nothing was found. On day three, mom's then boyfriend, who we'll refer to as Jay, was the unlucky diver that found him. Bodies decompose fast in water, and the poor kid was at the bottom. Jay quit immediately following that recovery. There are some things you can experience and get past. There are some things you can't. At the time of me being told that story, he was still having nightmares from it. And, he told me, he felt a supreme sense of guilt, despite knowing that there was nothing he could have done, because it was just a kid. But seeing the condition that the kid was in after just three days, and seeing that it was just a young kid that had drowned in a freak accident. He could never get past that. It still haunts him to this day, I'm sure. Cop here. Anyone want a story? About nine years ago, we get a call from a payphone. There's a dead body in the abandoned building at Corner 1st and Main street names made up for this story an officer responds to the area and can't find anything that would be considered an abandoned building the caller hung up without leaving any information and the payphone that he called from was several miles from that area so the officer clears out the call having no contact the next day we get another phone call from another payphone there's a dead body inside the abandoned building at the corner of first and maine Again they hang up without offering any other information. This time I get dispatched the report. I head up to the area of that intersection and start looking around. Now understand that I live and work in a fairly sizable metropolitan area and this was when the economy was still good. Booming even. Abandoned buildings were hard to come by at that time. I drive through all the shopping plaza is a little industrial complexes within the vicinity of that intersection and I can't come up with anything. So I start driving a little bit further in each direction. But I remember that there's some new construction that hasn't been finished yet. And I wonder if they think that those are considered abandoned. I get out of my car and walk through a bunch of businesses that are still in the framing stages. But I can't find anything as i leave the area i'm now more than a mile from the original call location as i pull out onto the major roadway i stop for traffic and look in front of me there it is a gigantic electrical component factory that has been vacant for probably the last 15 years it has a nine foot wall around the entire perimeter and the landscaping is still maintained so it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb right away That added to the fact that I'm pretty far away from where the caller said it should be. But then again, it's abandoned. It's definitely abandoned and has been for a very long time. So I call for another unit to back me up and we go check it out. We use a drainage pipe to climb up and over the nine-foot wall to get inside the perimeter. We start walking the building checking every single door. When I say this place is big I mean it's huge. It's over 100,000 feet dot squared. It's like an old abandoned Motorola, or Freescale, or Intel type building. It has gigantic coolers on the outside, pipes running all over which way, ductwork running down the sides of the buildings, loading docks, and a basement. Every door we come across is locked and secured. We continue walking around looking for anything out of place as i get about three quarters of the way around the building i pull on a door and it flings open i called my backup who comes over to me we knock announce and enter the building as we step into a hallway that leads about 100 yards down with doors on either side the door we just stepped into closes and it's black pitch black like can't see my nose on my face black we start moving through the building. Trying to clear each room has the best of the two of us can. But this place is absolutely gigantic and each room is connected to what seems like four other rooms. We stepped into one room and the door closes behind us. It must have been some old clean room or something. It was the weirdest thing because there was no sound. Nothing. I couldn't hear the traffic outside, or the grumble of electricity or air moving all the sounds that we heard throughout the rest of the building were gone in this one room. When I spoke to my partner our voices didn't even echo. It must have had some kind of sound cancelling insulation or something. But it freaked me the out. The floor had random 12-inch holes in it, that led down to a basement that was flooded by over 6 feet of water. Wire, ceiling panels, and wire jacketing, were hanging from the ceiling. There was broken glass, broken pieces of metal and brick holes in the drywall and abandoned equipment all over i clearly remember thinking to myself that if there ever a time that i would be attacked by skinless zombie dogs this would be it and the entire time we are trying to find a dead body as though this thing wasn't freaky enough i'm actively looking for a dead guy we end up moving through the building clearing it as best we can until we get to what was definitely the industrial part of the building gigantic boilers, evaporative coolers, and components that run the building. Oh, and spiders. A ton of spiders. We stepped into a room and find that it is a dead end. We've reached the end of the building and we don't have any further to go. The room is about 20 by 30, and contains five very large electrical cabinets. They are about 8 feet tall, and each about 4 feet wide, sitting next to each other and they look exactly how I would design the lab of an evil genius if I had to make a sci-fi movie. The entire thing was covered in dials, levers, and red and green buttons. But only the panel in the middle was still illuminated. It had one study glowing red light on it. The first and only light I saw in that entire building. My partner calls out to me you got anything? I replied no. Nothing in here. Looks like this was a gigantic waste of time. Just let me take a look behind these cabinets and we'll be good to head back to our cars. The panels have about 18 to 24 inches of room on each and between them and the wall and the wall behind them. I walk over to the left side and peek my head around. And bam, there he is. A dead guy on the ground, pinned between the wall and the cabinet. He's on his back, arms in front of his chest like a T-Rex, and he has some injuries. And I nearly shot him. Not gonna lie. He scared the living ass out of me. Even though I spent the last hour actively looking for him, I still wasn't completely ready for it. So skip ahead to calling detectives etc. At the time, stripping copper was fairly new, at least to our area. I didn't recognize what the wire jacketing meant, as I hadn't seen it before. These two knuckleheads in breaking into this abandoned factory for god knows how long and systematically stripping every piece of metal out of it. And they made it all the way to the very last room. The only room that still have power running to it. See, the middle panel, you controlled the fire suppression system for the building. And the owner's insurance policy required that it remained on active. When these guys opened up the panels they must have thought they hit the mother load. Each one contained an inch and a half copper cable. Now an inch and a half copper cable is worth quite a bit of money, but it also conducts quite a bit of electricity. They cut through the first one successfully, leaving the sharp ends exposed inside the cabinet. But when this poor sap started cutting into the second one, he got the right of his lifetime. Not only did he electrocute himself, but the current coursing through his arms pulled him into the cabinet stabbing one of the exposed ends of the previous cable into his chest this kills the copper thief what always struck me was that his accomplice never came forward to identify himself when we contacted the decedent's family denied knowing anything about his copper stealing habits so these two stole probably $100 150,000 dollars worth of copper together over several months and at the end of the day his buddy left him dead to rot away in an abandoned warehouse. No honor amongst thieves. This is also one of my more favorite war stories from work. Edit, I have an inbox full of messages telling me that the partner did nothing wrong. So as a late edit, here's my two cents on that. First, what if the guy wasn't killed instantly? What if medics could have done something? Between the electricity and injury I'm not sure what actually caused him, but my mind always wondered what if he lied dying on a cold concrete floor. Second, based on signs, I believe he died on day one, and the partner called day two, and again on day three. Or later on day one and again day two. I don't believe he stopped immediately to call 911. I don't know, and it doesn't much matter because he got off scot-free but however it went down, I personally don't feel you can call it honorable. Not me but my friend is a cop in a major Canadian metropolitan, and one night that we were supposed to go out after his shift, he decided to pick me up in his cop car, since he was almost finished his shift and was just going to drop the car back at the depot. On the way though he got a call that someone was complaining about noises coming from their basement that sounded like a person, so he decided to make that his last stop. I was told to wait in the car, while he talked with homeowner and checked it out. He was gone for about half an hour before we came back and had this terrified slash amazed face on him. Apparently the homeowner was hearing loud thuds from his basement for a couple of weeks but on the day of the call they were really loud and scaring him. He had a walk-in basement so he thought maybe someone had broken in. My friend goes to the basement to check it out with the homeowner. Basement is all dark and the lights need to be turned on from the electrical panel. So they get to the panel and my friend says he saw something in the corner of his eye. He turns around and at an end of a hallway which leads to a cold storage he sees a guy facing the door of the cold storage just standing there. He yells at the guy to turn around but he doesn't. Homeowner sees him too and is really scared. Friend asks the guy to turn around once more before hitting the switch for the lights and the guy slash ghost at the cold storage just disappears when the lights come on. My friend swore that he searched every inch of that basement and could not find anyone else there. Homeowner is shook up and says he's gonna stay with a friend for a night and my friend calls another cop to survey the house to see if anyone tries to enter the main house or basement. Not sure what happened after but my friend swears he saw someone in that basement. Thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe for daily stories. We at Horror Den of Misfits really enjoy this and your support would be appreciated.